HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, my guest is Nick Curtola. Nick is originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. He's cooked at Camino in Oakland. After a year of cooking in Italy, he came back to the United States, and he has worked in Brooklyn at Franny's, Gladys, Romans, and he's also cooked overseas in London, Amsterdam, and Copenhagen, so he gets around. In 2015, Cartola was selected as the executive chef at the Four Horsemen, a 37-seat restaurant located in Williamsburg. It's allowed Nick to showcase the type of food he wants to cook with strong flavor influences from the the Mediterranean and Asia, but sort of, he just cooks whatever he wants without easy categorization of the plates that are on the menu. The restaurant has received extensive praise for both his cooking and its focus on natural wine. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we get on to Four Horsemen, I want to start at the way, way beginning. Tell me about growing up in the Bay Area. Uh, What did your parents do? Did you have siblings? Did you live in Oakland or did you live in San Francisco? Like where, where was your childhood? Actually, I lived about 30 minutes east of Oakland in the suburbs, um, in this little tri-valley area. 
and yeah, my, my dad was an accountant and worked in um, the Silicon, well, what became the Silicon Valley. Um, he was there before that. Uh, and my mom worked in, uh, at a bank and then later on worked at um, my grandfather's business, which was like a, a local little nine hole golf course. And that's actually the where first you worked. Yeah, <laughs> I worked there as well. Um, but yeah, I went to, I have a brother, a uh, younger brother by two years and yeah, we had a pretty, I don't know. It was a pretty fun little life growing up. And I, th- I think about it a lot, especially I have a daughter now and I'm just like, we didn't have obviously cell phones and things like that back then. And I, I'm, I miss the days of being able to just like let get let loose and go like skateboard down to the, the skate park and just like hang out for the afternoon there. And so you were like a real California guy growing up. I think I mean, so. I've never surfed before, actually. Okay. But, but like, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, a little skateboarder, just kind of punk kid. The the kind of California culture that may have led you to kind of pursue the career that, that you have, I'm curious if your parents were uh, pretty strict or if you were allowed to kind of pursue your passions, basically did your dad want you to be an accountant? Did your mom want you to work at a bank? Or did they kind of say, Nick, do your own thing? Uh, they definitely let me do my own thing. Um, yeah, some, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I wish they were a little more strict. And we're like, <laughs> hey, man, like maybe you should be an accountant. Make, make some good money because <laughs> that, that would have been nice. But no, they, they let me do what I, what I wanted to do. And I somehow found my way into the, into the cooking world. You you started at fourteen working at your grandpa's golf course. Right. Were you uh, were you working in any capacity with food there, or were you working? Were you like a groundskeeper? No, I mean I worked the little snack shop, but it was like you know heating up hot dogs and and stuff like that. It wasn't anything. That's always the start, though. You know, it's yeah. just like washing dishes gets you adjacent to the fryer, which gets you yeah. adjacent to the hotline or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so at that point in your life, what did you think you might want to do when you got older? I mean, I had always wanted to, <laughs> to be in the FBI or like the CIA to do and criminal justice. And um, I actually went to school a little bit for that and then realized it was like way out of my realm of what I was capable of and so you started undergrad somewhere i i was going to like a local community college kind of like unsure what i wanted to do when i got out of um when i graduated high school uh yeah and i think that's what happens with a lot of people that end up in this industry they're kind of like a little lost and in the the restaurant world is very embracing i feel like when you're it can be it can be welcoming to someone who doesn't necessarily know their path right Right. it's like very it's in a very employable realm you know come in clean this bag of xyz and like we'll pay you at the end of the week right uh did you did you go to culinary school did you get a job before camino like what's young career looking like when you're in oakland at that point yeah so i i ended up going to culinary school just because at that time there wasn't like YouTube or anything like that. And I, I really didn't know. I knew I wanted to, to cook. I had kind of been helping my mom out with like some catering and stuff like that. Cause she ended up doing, um, cooking classes for like adults. And I knew I wanted to cook and take it a little bit more seriously, but there was really no, for me at least, I didn't know the best way to get my foot into, in the door at these restaurants. I didn't know you could just like go knock on a door and say, Hey, I'll work for free. Like, I just want to be working at this restaurant. I thought, people were going to be looking for some kind of, you know, skill level. Um, so I went to culinary school in San Francisco and was living in San Francisco at the time. Um, and 
I couldn't really afford to, to live on my own at that point. So I was kind of like living with my parents and Oakland was the next kind of biggest, big, biggest, closest city. Uh, and so, yeah, I went and kind of like was working around a few restaurants there and, and through the, you know, word on the street, I heard that this guy, Russell Moore was opening up Camino and that he had worked at Chez Panisse for, you know, 20 years. And I had done some staging at Chez Panisse and I was, I really liked the food there. And so that got me really excited and especially opening a new restaurant was something that I thought would be pretty, um, important for my career and just kind of interesting to see. So you joined the team at Camino prior to opening? Uh, yeah, I think I was hired on maybe a month, month before they opened. So you got to see a little bit of the laying of the groundwork and like system implementation but the build out had kind of already been done the build out was done yeah Yeah. so for those that that don't know what kind of cuisine did camino do and did that reflect at the time what was happening in the bay area or was it a deviation i think most people know what happened at chez panisse but it was it in that realm or was it doing something totally different no it was definitely in that realm i think um russ was the chef of the cafe which is upstairs at chez panisse um and that food was kind of a little more playful a little you know it was an a la carte menu not the set menu that they do downstairs um but yeah, it was definitely like very Mediterranean inspired, a lot of like Spanish, um, Spanish influence. Uh, and the thing about it was that they changed the menu every day. And, you know, sometimes it was little tweaks, but for the most part, it was quite, quite large changes. So f- as a young cook for me, it was really awesome to see, you know, the evolution of like produce and ingredients. And, and to be honest, like he was getting in some of the best produce and and meats I've ever had. I mean, he had these like really deep connections with a lot of farmers in the Bay area. Um, and that, that to me was like, I think really important in shaping the way I kind of look and uh, look at ingredients now and the way I, the way I cook. Um, and yeah, I mean, he had a, he had a very kind of like, I don't know, delicate palate and like delicate sensibilities. And I, I really thought the food was like, yeah, kind of like feminine in nature, not too assertive or aggressive. And um, I think at the time it was kind of, you know, you you saw those influences in and around the Bay Area. I think, you know, I haven't been back seriously for about, you know, in that scene for about eight to 10 years now. So I think it's changed a lot. But at that time it was kind of like he was definitely at the forefront of like this, like the food scene in the Bay Area. Yeah. And then you made the decision, you jumped overseas, right? So you spent some time at Camino, and then you went to Piedmont? Yeah. And I'm curious, how did you hook up with uh, that specific region of Italy? Like, is it based on any familiar family connections, or uh, did Russell suggest it to you? Like, why there, yeah. and, and how long did you go for? Um, yeah, so actually, well, my... my dad's family's from Calabria in Southern Italy. So it wasn't like a a family thing, but, um, I happened to go to this, um, guest chef dinner at this restaurant called Acarello in San Francisco. And this, the guy Fulvio Sicardi, the chef that I ended up working with was doing, um, he was the guest chef there. And I had always wanted to go cook overseas. I think for me, like France seemed really intimidating for some reason. Um, even though like most people are like, yeah, you go, if you want to go overseas to work, you go to France. I mean, it wasn't like Denmark or anything like that at the time. Or I mean, kind of Spain, I, to be honest, I tried to go work at El Bui. I sent them like a, at the time you had to like fax them this like sheet and everything. I did it. I never heard back from them. You but, faxed them a cover letter with your resume. Yeah. Well, they had this actually 
this thing online you had to print out and fill out and then like fax back to them. But anyway, they, I never heard old back school. from them. Yeah. Someone and, listening is like, had to just Google what a fax machine yeah, was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so then what was I just talking about? So you went to Italy. Oh yeah. So, so I hooked up with this guy and I said, Hey, I'd, I'd really like to come work for you. And he said, kind of just like on a whim, I said that. And he was like, yeah, shoot me an email. I was like, all right. I went home and I was like, no way this guy's going to like let some American kid come work in his kitchen. And I emailed him and he, he actually set me up in an apartment and he like rent was free. He had, they paid me, which was kind of like amazing, unheard of. But I mean, it was, it was an amazing experience. I was there for almost a year. Um, and yeah, it was in Northern Italy. So a really like beautiful area surrounded by these like medieval castles. Um, really like, cheese, um, cow heavy, like a lot of milk, dairy products, um, a lot of things like cooked in butter, much like richer cuisine. Um, and it, and for me, it was like eye opening to see, I feel like I finally got to understand like regional cooking. Um, and I, I had read a lot of books and I was always studying when I was like a young cook. And to me, like to see that firsthand and just to see that these guys like really don't work with anything outside of their region, if not outside of their little community that they have. Um, and, and that was really eye-opening. There are a lot of misconceptions about Italian cuisine. I think, especially in the United States, people still think that anything Italian is just pasta, right? They right. have they, they, they don't know that there's roasted meat and fish, and there are things that people might traditionally assume are more Mediterranean. They, they put that in like the Spain-Greek category, but yeah. Italy does a lot of that. So Definitely. what's the northern style that you were immersed in at that point? obviously butter cheese, but was it pasta heavy or was it more geared towards vegetable products? It was, it was pasta heavy. It was, it was, it was meat heavy as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of pastas. I mean like a lot of like the tyrene, the annulotti, the gnocchi, like classic, like really fresh potato dumpling style gnocchi with like fonduta cheese sauce and, um, carne cruda, like a lot of like raw meats and stuff like that. And, and pretty heavy in the charcuterie. I think all over um, Italy, there's a lot of like salumi and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that, but then I got a chance to like later on in life, travel around Italy a little bit more and just get to see the different, the different regions and how, how much different they were from where I worked. And um, I don't know, it was really interesting. Did you find that every day there was, sometimes when you're in the moment, you don't really think of it, but how much technique were you picking up that you had never experienced before? Were you, was it a huge learning curve or did you come in and say, well, I'm technically sound and now I'm just learning new kind of recipes and flavor profiles? Right. Yeah. It was a huge learning curve for me. I I was learning new things every day. I mean, the, the hardest thing was the language barrier. Um, I had done like a little bit of Italian courses back in California before I left. And then I did this like immersive, Italian course in, uh, in, um, where was it? Florence actually out of some weird thing I set up. But, um, anyway, yeah. So I, I learned a little bit of Italian, but it was like every day I would just be listening to what these guys were saying and I'd write things down in a little like notepad and then I would go home. I had a dictionary. I'd be like, what was that word they were saying like over and over again? You know what I mean? Like, and that's how kind of how I would pick it up. Did it get, did your Italian get good? Were you able to become conversationally sound within a few months that's awesome it was was pretty cool i mean i kind of had to as this town of like 
a couple hundred, few hundred people. It wasn't like I was in the a, a big city. It was a mountainous town. I guess that's the best way to do it, right? Like yeah. you didn't have much of an option. You needed to communicate in the kitchen. Yeah, I needed to communicate in the kitchen. I also worked with like a couple Japanese guys and a couple Italian guys. And so our, our language that we all spoke together had to be Italian. I mean, they didn't speak English and the Japanese guys didn't speak English. So I was kind of like, I didn't have a choice, you know? It sounds... Like it was pretty magical. It sounds like yeah. you were in a very isolated place where you could just kind of put your head down and focus a lot right. on cuisine. Uh, when you decided to come back to the United States, you joined the team at Franny's um, immediately, or did you work somewhere else first? I'm trying to think. I think I, yeah, I think when I first got to New York, I started working at Franny's. Um, yeah. Coincidental, or did you seek that out based on your Italian experience? I, I don't remember how I ended up there, but I remember going to eat there and just thinking, like, I need to work at this place. Like, it was, it was. And why? Why do you say that? I, I mean, that's a lot of people say that about Franny's. It yeah. has something, right? It had that in sort of intrinsic value to it that's hard to define. But if right. you can, like, what made Franny's special to you as a cook in the kitchen? I think for me, I could just tell they were using like I just come off of like working at Camino and, and then also in Italy where we were using amazing products. And I could tell, I just like, you could taste that they were using really amazing products at Franny's, but it was so solid. Like everything was perfectly seasoned, like high acid, high fat, high salt. Um, kind of just like riding the line right there that it was like super craveable food. And I just looked back in the kitchen, everybody was kind of having fun, but it seemed, it seemed like a very serious kitchen. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to, at Camino, or at Camino, I worked with a lot of wood-burning fire and they had the wood-burning oven there. I wanted to make pizzas. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it just, I, the room, I just remember that the old Franny's like always smelled kind of like smoky and from the wood-burning oven, it just had like a really, it had a very beautiful vibe, you know? The thing that always struck me about Franny's is that the the menu is very easy to digest for someone who isn't super adventurous Definitely. but it basically always read as everything you always wanted to eat but you couldn't make it as well in your home so Definitely. you should go to franny's and let them do an amazing job it'd be like spaghetti but you know that you're not going to come anywhere close you know it'd be like paparadel with lemon and that's the whole that's the whole yeah. dish but you could never replicate that in yeah. your home because of the technique and the ingredients um and obviously they did pizzas they they closed recently. Was that kind of a moment for you? Like you you spent a good amount of time there, yeah. And it was your first job <clears throat> back. How how did that feel when you when you saw that? I mean, yeah, it was it was it was kind of sad. I mean, I think uh, John and Danny, both the guys I had, had worked for there, had had already left. So for me, it was kind of like, I mean, it wasn't. It didn't feel like my old Franny's that, yeah. that I worked in, but it was definitely sad because it was a neighborhood. Uh, gem for sure. And not, not even just a neighborhood gem. Like I, I was over in Europe, um, doing some stages and stuff like that. And, and there were all these like other cooks, these really young cooks that were like, I, cause I went and did this when I was like 31 or 32. And there were all these young cooks that had staged at all these like really amazing restaurants. And I was like, Oh God. So they came around to me and I, you know, like, where did you work? And I was like, Oh, well, I worked at Franny's and, and, and the, and the chef like just stopped and was like, that's one of my favorite restaurants in the world. It's incredible. And it was just kind of like, all right, this is like this place is on the radar of like an international dining scene, you know? Yeah, I mean, you can't necessarily really eat at a place like Noma every single night, but you can right. eat at Franny's. Yep. You go there seven nights a week, and that's why people treated it sort of as an extension of their kitchen. Yeah. Uh, when we talk a little bit about Four Horsemen, I want to actually kind of transition that thought since right. you are a neighborhood restaurant. So we'll kind of come back around 
to how you've defined what happens at Four Horsemen. But before we get there, um, I want to talk about Gladys. Uh, Gladys seems like a fairly large departure from other things yeah. that you've done. Can you talk about how you got involved with Gladys? What type of cuisine is it? Um, it's in it's in Crown Heights, yeah. uh, which is that area has now been dubbed uh, by the New York. New York City Tourism Board, it's now like the Little Caribbean, that that area right. of Flatbush, Crown yeah. Heights, Prospect Park. Right. But you were there, this this is now, you were there maybe five years ago, I six years so, ago yeah. at this point. Yeah. So so how did you end up there? Um, so actually I worked with this, um, one of my fellow cooks at Franny's, this guy Chris Austin. I worked with him and he, he had along the way met this guy Mike Jacober, who I think also worked at Franny's way before we did. And Mike was opening up this restaurant um, on Franklin Avenue in Crown Heights, and Chris was going to be his opening chef. And Chris asked me to be the co-chef there, and that's kind of how I got hooked up with the project. Um, at the time, when we opened, you know, we had like a wood-burning grill, and we were doing kind of like, I don't know, I mean, it was like kind of similar to what I'm doing now at Four Horsemen, but a little, I was kind of like a little more fussy and fancy with, and I think um, it's. Now it's a Caribbean restaurant. Mike kind of flipped it, and t- he kind of felt that the the neighborhood kind of needed something more like that, I guess. But um, but we were doing kind of I don't know. It was like I was kind of trying to find my feet as a chef and like figure out what my voice was. And um, looking back at that food now, I'm like I'm pretty proud of what we were doing there. I feel like it was um, I don't know. I feel like it was a great restaurant that really didn't kind of have it have the chance that it deserved. But also it's just a good. It was a good opportunity for me to like just try out my stuff, I guess. It, it, so you're saying it pretty much let you, it was like a test run to, it was a, a, test to run. a certain extent. To a certain extent, um, yeah. And that restaurant is still open, but you're right, the identity of it has completely changed right. from being sort of more small plates, craft your own meal oriented to really like meat and sides, kind of a Caribbean, yeah. Caribbean joint vibe. Um, based on what we've been talking about, you know, Franny's, uh, Romans, which we didn't actually touch on, Gladys, and everything you've done overseas, I'm curious... Do you think one of those jobs was the most important job that you held uh, pre Four Horsemen? Does one really jump out at you and you say, "I took the most away from this Man. job"? That's tough. I mean, I, I think it would be a toss up between Camino and Franny's. I think for me, probably Franny's because because working with John and Danny, I had never worked with chefs like that. Those guys came from like incredible restaurants that I had only dreamed about like having the opportunity to work in one of those places. And I was just feel like I was able to pull so much information with them and their technique. Like you were saying earlier, like the technique there was so subtle and like, but I mean, it was, it was so technique driven, but so subtle as a, as a diner. And I, I really liked that. Um, but it also taught me a lot about um, just like New York produce and, like all a lot of they taught a lot me a lot about purveyors they also like taught me a lot about um like consistency and just kind of like they had so many amazing systems in place to just put out this like consistently delicious food that I like really did not take for granted I, I just like soaked that up and was like that's what makes this restaurant successful they're super busy we were doing like hundreds of covers out of this little restaurant always a line out the door and like we never served like a bad dish there. I feel like everything was just like so on point and solid and consistent. And when you talk about systems and consistency, are you elaborate on that a little bit for for those that that work or don't work in a kitchen? If you can just dial that in a little bit more, are you talking about 
you know, prep team has a recipe that's down to the gram and the pickup is using a timer and you are trained on it. Like, I guess, how do you put out 200 perfect plates of pasta every single night? It's one of the hardest things to do in a kitchen, right? Like getting pasta timing down. Anyone could cook one plate of pasta, but cooking multiple at the same time, different pasta shapes, different boil times, what kind of systems were in place to, to execute that high level without people realizing that it was actually so technically uh, complex. Right. It's, it still tasted like a human cooked it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's like portioning, um, down to the gram, like you were saying recipes, just like you want to try to try to eliminate user error as much as possible, but still make the food, you know, kind of taste delicious. Um, but yeah, I mean, portioning things was a huge part of it. Like working that pasta station, you had four timers, you know what I mean? Like, cause you're like, you're right. Every pasta had a different cook time. Um, and it was just a lot of kind of like recipe testing and development and just like solid training. The chefs worked the service every night. So they were constantly on top of your mise en place and, and tasting your food. I think that's really important. Um, and I've always liked working in small kitchens. Um, and so it's like, I love that organization and like labeling and, and just like consolidating, getting everything like super tight. I mean, for me, I'm like OCD about that. I have to let some things go sometimes. I'm like, all right, everybody's not, doesn't find that as offensive as I do, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, I love systems. I love organization. I like, you know, just like labeling things really neatly, all the labels facing out, like all that stuff I feel like allows for you to cook better and faster and, more consistently you're not fumbling around in a walk-in with like you know some container with the label facing the wrong way you have to flip it around it just, that's all to me I was just like that's a waste of time I don't want to have to deal with that um and maybe it's like OCD but I feel like for me it allows me to do so much more and I think just going to the four horsemen now and taking what I learned from Fanny's I'm I'm, I'm always surprised at what we're able to put out of that kitchen because it's very small we it's don't very, have a lot of space. Very tiny. And sometimes I look at the menu, I'm like, oh my God, how do we have like 20 dishes on the menu right now? You know what I mean? And it's because, uh, you know, I work with a really great team and we have great systems in place and we're able to just kind of like stay organized and on top of it. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Four Horsemen, Kitchen Tetris, a little, a little of what comes out of that very small kitchen every single night. Stick with us here on the line on Heritage Radio. what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. 
Welcome back to the line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and today my guest is Nick Cartola. He's the chef of Four Horsemen in Williamsburg. Previously, he has cooked at Franny's, Gladys, Romans in Italy, uh, and at Camino in Oakland. Uh, I want to ask about how the Four Horsemen job came to be. Uh, it's been a pretty high-profile restaurant since about 18 months before it opened. Yeah, that's it's intense. That's a lot of pressure and intensity. It's people really put it under the microscope from the second yeah. that people saw paper <clears throat> up on the windows. Yeah. And you you did the, the full build-out. For those that haven't been there, the kitchen is a closet for all intensive purposes right. it's like a mini line um and we just you you spoke briefly before the break about how it's a, a pretty big menu like it's a full service dinner menu so curious how did the job come to be and then talk a little bit about the opening process and how that went yeah so i had just finished um working at gladys and i had a friend of my wife's who happened to be friends with um, some of the people, the Four Horsemen, the owners of the restaurant. Um, and she was a regular at Gladys and really liked my food. And she was like, I, I want to put you in touch with these guys who are looking for a chef. They're opening a restaurant. Um, do you want to meet them? So I, I met up with them. I kind of just went over and had a chat with them at one of their houses. Um, and we kind of clicked and vibed and they were into the same things I was. And, you know, I was into the same things they were. And, um, yeah, so they took me over to see the space, and it was like, I was like, oh, you're really far out from having a restaurant. Like, it was, it used to be a, like a vegan fast food place, and it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty bad looking inside. But, but anyway, from there, we kind of, I did a couple of test dinners for them for some friends. Um, yeah. And you talk about like high profile, like one of the test dinners I did, like David Chang was there and there were some people from Bon Appetit and I was just like, okay, this is, <laughs> it's, it's like serious. Yeah. You know what I mean? They and brought out the big guns yeah. for the test dinner. Yeah. yeah that's, that I was like, All right. that's already a lot of pressure right. just on that first meal. Right. So. so, so I ended up getting the job um, and it was great because I got to work with them um, and, you know, completely design and build out the whole kitchen, have some input on the the dining room and just kind of like the vibe of the space, what, what kind of like what we were going for. And I, I just really kind of feel like I, I understood what they wanted. And I feel like, um, it really kind of like struck a nerve with me. And I, it was something that I, I felt like was, I was like ready to, to, to do. And so they were really far away from being open and you're very OCD. The owners are extremely precise in the way they wanted the dining room. Uh, how long did that process take from when you did the dinners to yeah. when you did, uh, you know, friends and family or first night of service? Right. So it was over a year. I think I met up with them in God, February or March did the, did a couple dinners and we didn't open until June of the following year, which was actually three years ago this week. Oh, nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, we did our first kind of like friends and family test dinner, June 1st of 2015. And the, the kitchen is, uh, it's, uh, it's all electric. There's yeah. no gas. There's right. no wood. Uh, you came from a place that was kind of wood heavy, yeah. a lot of oven stuff. Uh, are you using, I'm curious, how do, how do you, uh, work with those constraints? Is it, is it actually freeing or is it 
sometimes troubling for you? I think a little bit of both. I think, um, so I do actually have a Benchoton grill back there that we use and some, we have two of them that we can break out if we want. It, it's kind of cool. Cause like I have, I'm sorry. Is that over charcoal? What is yeah, that? Yeah, charcoal. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a little Japanese Conroe grill. Um, and yeah, so to, to me it's, it's sometimes really annoying, but a lot of times it's kind of fun because we change the menu a lot and we also um, do lunch and the lunch menu changes every week. So it kind of allows us to like, nothing's just kind of like set in stone. I can kind of like slide the stove over if I need to like put in a deep fryer, take out the deep fryer, set up another grill. And that to me, I kind of like, it's kind of like compartmentalized. Um, And I I like that. Um, The electric thing for me, we didn't want to install gas cause it would have been like this whole buildings code thing that we would have had to like refile for and it would have just prolonged the process even more. Um, so we went with electric and I, I mean, I like induction. It's very powerful. Like it's very common in European kitchens. Um, super easy to clean. You know what I mean? You're not trying to deep clean these little like cast iron stove Wipe down the top. Yeah, of, uh... <laughs> pretty much. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's great. Um, and it's given us a little bit of fuss, but I mean, so do gas burners. So yeah, do you find that uh, some of what you do in the restaurant, you think to yourself, you know, I'm not gonna actually do that because it would be the type of thing that I would only do over live fire, or do you not really think about dish conceptualization that way? Do you think of uh, components and then say, how am I gonna execute it, or do you ever put things on the chopping block because the kitchen's not right for it? Um, I do, I do both of those things, Okay. but at this point, just like for having cooked for this long, I can kind of walk through a dish in my head, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. kind of go like, all right, I'm th- I think about the current menu, what dishes are being picked up off of what station. And then I'm like, all right, I want to put this dish on, you know, what station could I potentially pick it up on? And then if it happens to be like, well, garbage is too loaded right now. I can't really put it on hot or middle. Maybe it's time to like rethink the dish or just take something else off if we really like the dish to get it on. Uh, yeah, we have to like play around a lot f- because of space. The the menu that you said changes often. It has some uh, areas that they're just very appealing to the diner, right? And it kind of, even though there's a lot of complex dishes that I would say are towards the bottom two sections of right. the menu, there's also a lot of stuff at the beginning of the menu. You've got charcuterie and cheese usually have oysters on the menu. Uh, and those are things that not only in Brooklyn, but everywhere now are, are really crowd pleasers. Um, there's not a lot of, a lot of things that come from that section. They're not cooked. You're, you're ordering them. How have you developed those purveyor relationships? Mm -hmm. There's a million different types of ham you can get in. There's 90 oysters. Do you do that selecting yourself? Is it, a committee who, who makes those no, decisions? It, it's me and it's been over a period of time. And really the way I go about sourcing anything at the restaurant is like building relationships with purveyors and just seeing, just kind of like letting, allowing them to dictate what goes on our menu and just saying like, listen, I want the best thing you have. What is it? I'll find a, I'll find a home for it. And it, it took, it took some time to like find, you know, this like Johnston County Mangalitsa that we're serving right now at the restaurant or, you know, the Finocchione that we're using or some of the cheeses like this guy, Chris, that I work with from Chef Collective gets me some of the best cheeses I've ever had. They're like always perfectly ripe. And I'm, I always ask him, I'm, I'm never looking for something specifically. I'm like, what, is, what are you really happy about right now? What are you really excited about? And I think that being free to, to kind of like, 
uh, work with your purveyors a little bit more, it, it gets them excited one to give you something. And it's kind of like, well, I told him I really like this product. Like it's, I got it. It's gotta be good. Um, it kind of puts them in the hot seat as well. And I feel like we get a better, something better at the end of it. I'm actually, I've got the menu open in front of me and I feel like this is a very four horsemen Nick dish. So I'm going to read it. And if you can kind of just walk us through a little okay. bit of it. Sure. So it's the Amberjack dish. It has blood orange scallion and fermented pepper. Right. Uh, it's just vague enough that someone can't fully categorize it. Right. Um, a lot of people don't know what Amberjack is, so that's also kind of like just an interesting item to have on yeah. the menu. It's not the old, same old crudo that everyone has. So yeah. if you can talk about the preparation of that dish and sure. how does uh, how does how did that come to be with the fermented pepper on there as well? Right. Well, just like just to talk about the menu real quick, it's like one thing I've always wanted and you kind of briefly touched on it with Franny's earlier is like, I never wanted like a really chefy menu that has like a lot of these like really crazy ingredients on and you kind of don't know what you're getting. I wanted it to, I wanted everything to kind of sound appealing. I wanted it to be easy to order from um, because I knew we were going to have a lot of wines and I knew like wine, you know, it's becoming more and more easy to, for people to order. They feel more comfortable, but I didn't want, to have this like intimidating wine list and then an intimidating menu and just kind of like have these confused people there. I, sure. wanted, I wanted them to order the wine and have that be the part that they focus on and look at this menu and say like, all right, this is easy. Like we want this, 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 and this. Um, but yeah, just going back to the, the Amberjack, like I'm pretty happy about having like a pretty solid raw, raw program and like a lot of like fish on the menu at any given time. Um, that dish in particular. So Amberjack is also called Kampachi. Um, it's a really, really fatty, oily white fish, um, that has like, um, we do a light cure on it, uh, four to one salt sugar. Um, sometimes we'll put some like herbs and spices in there. Like we used to do like fennel and chamomile kind of dried and toasted and, and put in the cure as well, just to give it a little subtle flavor. Uh, but we cure them for, we cure it for about 30 minutes or so. Um, just depending on the size, sometimes it's less, but, um, then rinse it, kind of let it air dry and get like a little pellicle. Um, and then, yeah, we juice blood oranges. Um, let me see the fermented pepper started. We had, um, some peppers from last year that I did some long hot peppers, some manzanilla peppers, and a few other types of hot peppers that were around at the end of summer. Uh, we had fermented them in like a 2% salt solution and still had them left over. So we just made a paste out of them and like brushed the fish with it. Um, uh, but yeah, we torched the skin to order. So it has like, if you go to like a sushi restaurant and they serve amberjack, a lot of times they'll torch it before they slice it. It has like, it's still like slightly warm when you get it, like warm on top where the skin is crispy and it's like chilled, um, kind of like towards the fattier part. And I, I really like that texture. So we torch it to order, rub it with some of the fermented pepper paste and then like settle into this like, um, mixture of, um, like blood orange juice, a little bit of Calabrian chili oil. And there's just like a lot of scallions and sesame seeds on top of there as well. So you get like some nutty, slightly bitterness from the sesame seeds and like bright crunchiness from the scallions and that like allium element to balance out like the sweetness from the, the blood orange. And there's also like some lemon on there too, because blood orange on its own isn't very acidic. Um, so that kind of brings in a lot of nice acid to balance with the fattiness of the fish. What's, cool about the menu is that there are a lot of components but as someone who's eaten there many a time the plates work harmoniously together which is a really difficult challenge at for lack of a better term we'll call it a small plates 
new American restaurant. I know neither right. of us really like that categorization. I'm sorry to do that, it's but right. it's like the menu defies categorization because on the same menu, you've got a dish that's, you know, spaghetti, Meyer, lemon, batarga, which seems more straightforward right. than the sort of Japanese application that you've just discussed with the amberjack. And then you've got a dish that ha- you got a fish collar with Moroccan spices and yogurt. I, we can kind of see where, where that is going. And then you've got a Sasso chicken, which has honey garlic glaze. So yeah. you're doing a lot of things. And these right. are also not one item, one sauce type of type of menu items. How do you keep everything harmonious? It's like a really impossible skill sometimes for chefs to self-edit yeah. and also self-edit the menu. So how do you how do you go through that process? Um, it's, it's tough. Like a lot of the flavors I use never, they kind of don't peak too high as far as like incredibly spicy or like super bright and acidic. Um, I like to have a pretty, like, I know those things, a lot of them sound kind of different, but I feel like when you get them, they're pretty well balanced. And I, I was eating out a lot before I opened the four horsemen. I went to a few places and I just felt like the food was really solid, but a lot of things, I just kept getting like the same flavors kind of in a few dishes. And I, I really wanted um, the food at the four horsemen to be kind of like, I don't know, just a little bit, a little bit different. Every plate's a little bit different, a little bit different experience, but doesn't stray too far in one direction that it kind of like stands out or ruins the meal. Like a lot of those dishes could stand side by side with one another and kind of, and kind of work, even though on paper, maybe it seems kind of, kind of strange. Um, I also like to pull certain techniques or like sauces or that glaze, for example. Um, and like, just use it maybe like a little bit more sparingly, um, just as like a, a kind of like a flavor pop. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to balance out. And the, the food at the four horsemen is like a long time ago. I, I kind of read something. I think someone like David Kinch said about, um, you know, once you become, once you become a chef and you start working for a longer period of time, you'll, you start to realize like it's not about what you put on the plate; it's what you're able to take off. And I really, I really think about that at Four Horsemen about like, does this dish actually need this? Does it need that? And once you start doing that, what's left on the plate just has to be perfect or or very well balanced or you know, very well seasoned, or else it, it totally misses the mark. And I think we really ride a fine line at the Four Horsemen with that style of cooking. How do you approach uh, food costing? So you use a lot of, of high-end ingredients. It's a very <laughs> cheese, meat, fish heavy yeah. menu. You've got a lot of raw applications. Um, all of those items carry a high price tag. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong, but you sort of have the luxury of people order a lot of wine at the yeah. restaurant. So I imagine that your check average is okay. But do you look at um, overall product mix and factor in beverages or do you – just from a business standpoint, like, do you try to hit a specific food cost on each dish or is it a menu blend? It's more, it's more of a menu blend. And, and like, I screw myself over a lot cause I really want to <laughs> work with like some of the best stuff and especially like the seafood does not help. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I, I find myself like the other day I put on this muscle dish and I was like, I'm going to put on this muscle dish and that's going to help my food costs. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to put, you know, salt cod in it. And then I was like, and I'm just going to put, you know, black jumbo black sea bass in it from Montauk. And then it turns out I'm like using this food cost helper. And then I'm adding this like fish that's like $12 a pound to it. And it's just like, I, I don't know. I get excited about that. I want to just, I want people to have like the best products. And yeah, I kind of shoot myself sometimes in the foot. But I think overall, it's just trying to limit your waste. Um, 
and just we're busy and it, that helps. We're not sitting on anything for too long. We're getting this stuff out. I, I am able to get in some pretty high quality stuff just because I know we'll, we'll go through it. And, um, a lot of times I feel like we're getting just as good ingredients as like some of like the, you know, one or two star Michelin restaurants around the city. And it's kind of like, I, I want people to have that kind of luxury in the setting that, that we do at the, at the four horsemen. I think it's kind of fun. You are really busy. You've been pretty much busy from the jump. If you walk by on pretty much any night, you've got, you have a, what is not even a waiting area. You have two yeah. zones a- against the windows right. that people tend to pack themselves in like sardines. Uh, and then you've just got, you're doing multiple turns a night. All of that factored into the fact that you and your partner have a young child yeah. and you've been going three years pretty much nonstop. I'm curious how, if possible, have you carved out a little time for work-life balance to spend time with your family? And uh, do you have any techniques or suggestions for people in the industry listening that are also have a family and have a business? I mean, it's, it's really hard. I think I'm lucky because my wife is in the industry. um, So she kind of understands you know, what it, what it takes. And she's kind of in the same boat I am. So we can kind of relate to one another with that regard. But, um, it's, it's really hard. I feel like for the first couple years at the four horsemen, I, we really didn't see each other a lot. Um, I think the biggest thing for us was kind of scheduling our days off. So we had one, at least one day together, which it sounds ridiculous because most people are like, yeah, we usually have like a weekend together. But for us, like just having that one day, especially with our daughter was like really important. And we tried to make the most of it. You know, we don't get to go out to eat a lot anymore or anything. So we would like try to find places like Roberta's, for example, where we could go for lunch and it, at like two o'clock and it wasn't crazy. And we could kind of like bring our daughter and just have like a nice going out for a meal experience. Um, that was pretty huge for us and just trying to like get out and be active and just like go to a park or whatever. Um, but find just finding that time was huge. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, we just work a ton and it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Based on that, you being there and being so involved in every single aspect of what happens at Four Horsemen, have you defined what your long-term goals might be there? Um, do you feel settled in there? And, you know, do you see yourself as being the leader of that kitchen in, in 10 years? Have you thought that far ahead? And if you have, what might the future look like for you? Right. I mean, I haven't thought that far ahead yet. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, I've gone so I've gone back and forth a lot with whether I want to open up my own restaurant or not. I'm just like, it's such a risk. I mean, as I'm sure as so many people know, it's just sometimes I get really excited about it. I'm like, yeah, I want to open my own place. Like I could do this and this is going to be awesome. And then sometimes I'm just like, I'll have a meeting with our accountants and I'll just be like, Oh my God, if this was my place, like I would have to be really on top of all of this and it'd be much more stressful than it is now. And I'm kind of in a lucky position. Um, but as far as at the four horsemen, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy. I'm settled in. I feel like we're hitting a really good stride right now. Um, I have a, such a solid team that like, it's, it's kind of unbelievable sometimes how much I like working with these people. Um, and it's just such a, been such a great experience to come into work every day and just be like nine times like 99% of the time I'm just like so happy to go into work and that's just I haven't had that at another restaurant um but yeah I get to go with the work with a good team and I get to 
I kind of have a little more time to play around now. Whereas when we first opened the Four Horsemen, I was working a station every night with like two other cooks. And now we have, you know, I'll expedite and we'll have three cooks and potentially one person downstairs doing like some raw bar stuff. And it's just like the team has expanded, the place has expanded. And because of that, it's allowed me a little more freedom to play around and work on the menu and develop. And I think that is, I'm in a good place now there. Yeah. I don't want to not talk about the wine since it's an important part of the Four Horsemen. So we're wrapping up. I'll try to get you out of here on on this last question, which is uh, I know that you're you like sparkling, right? You like bubbles. And who doesn't? (laughs) And uh, and obviously you have access to a tremendous wine list there. I'm curious. Is there something great that you've drank that you feel is perfect for the kind of the, the upcoming weather that we're having something that might be on the menu there might not that you're really feeling these days you yeah. do a lot of natural wines there yeah. as well so what what are you into right now wine wise champagne <laughs> always no i think our, our champagne list is so amazing right now and and, and the, a lot of the staff is really excited about it um and I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm always in the mood to drink it. Generally, I'm drinking it after a shift and it always tastes delicious. I mean, it's like when I was a younger cook, it has the effect of beer. You know what I mean? It's like sparkling. It's light. You get a Pilsner after your shift. And it, this is just like a little classier step up. Um, but yeah, the champagne program at the Four Horsemen is incredible. And I, I'm, the staff is so knowledgeable. I always like learn about, learn something new. And um, yeah, it's really special. Let everyone listening know where they can find you for the Four Horsemen. You do a set lunch as well. So yeah. if you could tell us what kind of your hours are during the week too. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, we're on Grand Street, 295 Grand Street between Roebling and Havemeyer and uh, in Brooklyn, Williamsburg. Um, we're open, let's see, 530 to the kitchen's open 530 till 11 uh, during the week and then Friday and Saturday till midnight serving food, believe it or not. Um, and then the bars up until 1am every day. Uh, then on the weekends we do a set lunch menu. It's 28 bucks a person, um, changes every week. Even like the bread changes every week. Dessert changes every week. Um, we're still using the same incredible ingredients we do for dinner. And it's, it's almost like a little platform for us to kind of fool around with maybe bringing something in we've wanted to try or, or maybe a dish we wanted to work on to get to the dinner menu. Um, but just like really, really good food. Um, a little more, a little more simple, a little more rustic. Um, but yeah, that's every Saturday and Sunday from noon till four. Cool. Awesome. So there's a lot of ways that, that people can get in there to try it if they can actually snag a, if they can get a reservation. Try to be available. Oh yeah. We're also on resi now. So it's a little easier to get a reservation, I feel like, but we're, we're flexible. I mean, we can, we generally can make, make people happy and get people in. Cool. Try to get over there and check it out. I highly recommend it. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for being here and sharing your uh, your story and talking a yeah. lot about uh, Four Horsemen and all the other places that you've been. Appreciate you swinging by. No problem. Thanks for having me. And everybody out there, thanks for listening. Join us here on Heritage Radio every single Tuesday for a new episode of The Line. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 